Welcome to the Arrow Buddhist Tradition podcast series. The following podcast is from a teaching given by Nocturne Rinpoche in San Francisco in 2009 on the subject of relationship as practice. It is based on a book called Entering the Heart of the Sun and Moon, written by Nocturne Rinpoche and his wife, Contradation. For more information about the Arrow Buddhist tradition, please go to the website at arrowbuddhism.org. If you wish to make a donation to support this podcast project, please go to the section of the website labeled How to Help and select Make a Donation. Thank you. I think I I can understand it in an example I have with my daughter, Mm -hmm. who I recently bought a car for because I wanted her to be able to get to her new job and be be safe. So there was something kind of generous about that to give her the car. Mm -hmm. But my reason for giving the car to her was far more than just that I was being generous to her. It had more, I think it had more in this connection that I have with her and in the bigger picture. And so I can kind of see that in sort of this more of a connected... Well, then it gave you some pleasure to do that. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, that pleasure is the compassion. Yes, that's what yeah. I'm understanding is that That's right. Yes. Yeah. So... I, I think this is somewhat shocking for Western o- audiences <laughs> to realize that compassion is pleasure. Who mm. oh, no, knows? I'm, I'm supposed to suffer in some way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've got to sacrifice myself, you know, because, uh, the, you know, the Christian image of compassion is this one, you know, it's being nailed up. And, and that runs really deep in Western people, you know. I've got to suffer to be compassionate. This is this. I, I, I'm not ridiculing that image in any way, but it, it's it's. Uh, uh, I've been teaching now for something like um, 35 years, and uh, I hit up against it all the time. This sort of um, Calvinistic, self-punishing <coughs> mode, you know. That um, I, I remember I was with Jimmy Riggs and Rupesche in, in Frankfurt, and he was talking about um, this particular practice of Tonglen, which is, you know, giving up all your benefit to sentient beings and taking on all their suffering. And, and he was teaching it as a dance, about how you stamp on self-cherishing, and you've got all these aspects of it, and you, and this dance is a fierce leaping thing. Whom, and you stamp on that bit, and you stamp on that bit. And uh, he was talking about taking on all this suffering, and this poor lady at the back said, "No, it's too much." <laughs> 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 Shimmery Hiroshi turned to me and said, oh, you deal with this. <laughs> 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 <And> so, <laughs> so I said, you know, it's um, <laughs> what you need to understand about the bodhisattva is that, you know, the, the bodhisattva is not out to suffer in particular through doing this. The bodhisattva in Tibetan Buddhism is far more like Rambo, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's more suffering. I can take it, you know. It's um, I've got the muscle. I can, you know. It's it's nothing to do with, you know. I take on all the world's suffering and I turn into this cancerous cinder, you know. 
<laughs> destroy it. It's, it, it, you know, it's a big act of machismo being a bodhisattva, you know, it's like, you know, um, you know juggling chainsaws and uh, <laughs> it's entirely different. What, what would you say, or would you say that, um, for instance, you, you feel, I guess, what I would call compassion towards someone who's suffering, and if that state of sadness arises in myself, for instance? That we wouldn't call compassion. Okay. It's what you do. That's the compassion. It's the act. Versus the state of compassion. Yeah, uh, yeah which is why compassion, I said yesterday, um, maybe you weren't here at that time, but... But that it's not really a good word. It doesn't equate to what is meant by chantrupsem. Mm -hmm. Chantrupsem is uh, uh, awakened heart mind, and it's, it's 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 to do with activity. The word Chantrupsempa or Bodhisattva, the word Pa is uh, spelled DPA, little d, capital PA. And this means, is short for power, which means warrior. It is not just person Pa, it is warrior Pa. You know, and, and the word warrior is someone who acts. So, so it's the act. It's really highly um, active, highly um, involved. Which is why you know the thousand-armed Chenrezig is a, is a symbol of activity. You know, you have all these hands to do something. You know, not just to say, "Oh, poor you." You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's not a bodhisattva. You know. Uh, a, a, a bodhisattva should actually feel joyous that he or she is able to help. Mm. You know, ah, an opportunity to help. You know, that that feels good. Because you only feel sad for someone who's suffering because you can't help them. Mm. If you can help them, then you should feel glad about that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think it's somewhat cultural to feel sad for people. I only feel sad for people if I can't help them. You know, then there's something you know, I, I wish I could and I can't. I don't have the capacity. But if you have the capacity, <coughs> then then that's a joyous thing. So to, to follow on that, if if you because okay, what's my question? So am I to un, would it be a correct understanding to say that? Completely compassion is an act and not a experience or a, a state so in that if I, in the example you just gave where I feel sad because I can't help someone, mm -hmm. but I, I, then is that not compassion? Like no. you can't help them? Can you still be, have? Oh, yeah, there's always something you can do in terms of okay. practice, right. in terms okay. of visualization, in terms of just making the wish. Right. Having the wish to help even though you can't. And having the wish that maybe you could at some point or something might happen in which you have the opportunity to help. But, uh, but having that wish then um, is, is really important. 
I, I, I think maybe uh, unless it's specifically to me. It's not necessarily. Well, yes, yes, actually, it is. At one point, I think last year, you had mentioned uh, irritation and compassion. Yes. That compassion arises out. Uh, it's the irritation of something. You know, suffering. Is it from suffering? Noticing someone suffering, right. the irritation that arises. This is part of a Tibetan story, so I think I'd better just repeat the whole story and then you'll get a... a it's not really irritation. That word is not used in, in an ordinary sense. Um, there's the saying that um, uh, sentient beings, that is dualized sentient beings, see Buddhas as sentient beings, as dualized sentient beings. Buddhas see dualized sentient beings as Buddhas. The fact that dualized beings do not see themselves as Buddhas causes Buddhas irritation. <laughs> and that irritation is known as compassion. That that's the whole thing, so you, you have to have it in context. And, I mean, y you can sometimes feel that irritation where somebody is causing themselves a problem that they don't need to be causing themselves, and you don't want to slap them around a bit. Put it up together, yeah. <laughs> I'm always wanting to slap people around here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, going, sorry, go ahead. I just had one last question on this compassion. Um, the way you were talking about it yesterday and also today made me think that these liberated qualities and also the Buddha karmas were expressions of compassion mm. or ways. Of, okay. Yes. Okay. So, looking back as a preparation for going on, you're looking back at your example of the car. You, know, you can see all the elements functioning there. You looked at the situation and you saw what she needed. That's the clarity of the water element. They're, they're not really aspects that we can separate out unless we try to do that. We try to notice how they're separate. Yeah. So, if you look a little bit at the chart here, you'll notice that there's a little bit of a connection. There's a, there's a resonance between earth and fire. They're both attractive. They both want to get a hold of something. Water and air are much more concerned with threat. So when the empty quality of form in an experience is perceived in terms of earth and fire, the impulse is that we need to grab or get or attain or solidify something in order to fix the problem. In terms of the earth element, we're much less concerned with the qualities of the thing than <coughs> the solidity, the mass, the number. We just want a lot. <laughs> it makes us feel solid. Again, we are in reflection to this experience. In terms of the fire element, it's the one. It is the orb which completely overwhelms our attention and that's just going to be it. 
and then as soon as we have it, it passes out of view. It's not in reflection anymore. At the moment, get another a, one. at the moment, there's a twelve-string Gibson Lucille. <laughs> 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 Just thought I'd let you know. That. <laughs> <laughs> is not part of the spectrum, although sometimes black and blue are the same place in the scheme, but it, black is manifested as a wrathful situation. So a wrathful yida may have black as their color when they occupy the space portion of the, of the spectrum and the diagram. Mm So moving on to the air element, we also see that the primary misconception is a threat. But unlike the water element, <coughs> emptiness does not present us with a specific threat. Our attention sees that something is not quite right. Something could happen from almost anywhere to get me. You know. Are they talking about me behind my back at work and scheming against me? And they're, they're, you know, they're trying to write me out of this project. And, uh, you know, is she fooling around behind my back? Is, is, is that neighbor going to come and key my car? <laughs> 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 it's, we know there's a threat. We just don't know where it is. You know, emptiness is always manifesting form and we tune into the quality that emptiness is just about to manifest something but we're, we know it's going to be bad. We just don't know where it is yet. And, and Ripshe has a fabulous description of this process of trying the coping strategy of the air element which is the scanning. We're trying to see that threat as it arises so we can deal with it. We can be safe from it. But we don't know where it's coming from, so we have to scan. And if we stop scanning because we think it might be there, then it's much more likely to be coming from over there. So we have to go back over there. <laughs> but, oh, but then over here it could be coming. Or what, what about behind me? We have to go faster and faster and faster in order to try to get control of every aspect of our experience to find this threat. But there's a problem. As we go faster and faster and faster, we see everything we look at less clearly. <laughs> but because of the nature of our misconception, that means we need to go even faster. <laughs> and so we have the, um, the emotional uh, distorted quality of this element is anxiety or envy or jealousy. It's this, this gnawing need to fix it, but we just can't quite figure out how. And so we spin. Yeah. But the liberated quality is called self-accomplished activity. You can see that the anxiety, which is going faster and faster, is definitely an activity. The liberated quality is very much the same. You just take the dualistic confusion out, and it's an activity that is not contingent on reference points. It is not tied to the need for a specific outcome, which is solid, permanent, separate, continuous, or defined. Yeah. Now the space element, as I said before, where it can be kind of none or all, 
um, because it's the ground of all the other experiences. The space element is the collapse of the struggle of the samsaric engine and, and um, the samsaric obsession and anxiety and greed, etc. We become overwhelmed. It's just too much. We can't fight it anymore. <sighs> That's the perception of emptiness in all of our attempts to get form to be solid, permanent, separate, continuous, or defined. So we give up, and this looks like depression. We just can't engage with it anymore. We attempt to keep out now even the form qualities of emptiness. We're rejecting the whole package because it doesn't work. We're beaten. We give up. So we retreat to bed. And we don't get up. Except we have to. And after a long enough time in bed, most people will re-engage with trying to get something worked out. Trying to make it work somehow. Because being depressed doesn't offer us that satisfaction either. It turns out to be a coping strategy that doesn't work either. Because we're retreating from the sense fields, our world gets smaller and smaller and we think this is going to work. We think this is going to keep us safe from that vast, overwhelming array of experience. But because we retreat, and the real problem with what we're trying to get away from is emptiness, as we get smaller, emptiness gets bigger. And we're screwed. <laughs> it doesn't work. Again, the mechanism of trying to do it according to our dualistic vision defeats itself inherently. But the quality, the liberated quality of the space element is seeing everything clearly and without um, uh, adulteration, seeing everything as it is, an intelligence that understands things for what they are because it doesn't retreat. It is, it is wisdom. <coughs> yeah? Is ubiquitism? Everywhere. The Ribshay's formal paragraph there is ubiquitous intelligence in all-encompassing space. <coughs> is awareness in the vastness of empty appearance without the need to fix that or concretize that or limit. The intelligence doesn't have to be limited because it needs to scale down this overwhelming emptiness. Yeah, that's my spiel. Are there any other questions? Take, take, this, take this home magnet it to your refrigerator, ponder it, but again, don't take it as a formula. This, this list goes on until the end of the world. It's, these are descriptions. Under symbol you have these, and I've seen others, um, mm -hmm. circle, square, triangle. In terms of the chart and the stupa, yeah. you know, earth is the square, and then there's the circle, and then there's the flame, and and there's the disc and the tickle, yeah. That's a different system, but it's still elemental. Thank you.
Thank you. I think it might be good to have a little break now, and then when we come back, having heard this, uh, no, you won't make any more sense of what you're going to hear. But it, 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 at least it'll have created an environment for it. We're going to read some of the um, vignettes of uh, male-female interaction, both the um, liberated vignette and the vignette of dualistic derangement. And then after that, I'm going to talk about the uh, Nyam of Khandrapawud mirroring. Earth, Earth, <coughs> the vignette of liberation. She appreciatively surveys the coet compass of his qualitative and quantitative provinces. She applausively prizes his lavish lordliness and the superlative scale of the fields over which he holds extravagantly beneficent dominion. Her sentient sapidity is enormously enhanced by the availability of his concatenation, concatenatious carnal empiricism. And in unreservedly meeting his magnitude, measure for measure, she glories in his manifestational prowess. He assiduously apprehends the prolifically sedulous leeway of the interleafed environments in which she engages. He is expansively fascinated by her languid prestige, which manifests through an oblique variety of associations in which her sway assumes divergent stylistics. He propounds opulently operose polemics in praise of the prodigiously resplendent patronage of phenomena which portray her natural nobility. In being apprehended with thoroughgoing and painstaking delectation, she is welcomed into the congruous congeniality which comprises the purview of his dauntingly demonstrable domain. In spontaneously possessing and being possessed by the reach and range of the terrain she experiences, she is imbued with illimitable philanthropy. Her subtle province of pervasive preeminence engenders tenaciously cogent tangents, which are the complete counterpart to his. In being voluminously valued with indubitable verisimilitude, she accepts her latent competence to command appearances. Fecundly facilitated to propagate the proliferation of his pragmatically perfect province, he allows his domain to devolve ethereal and amorphous principalities, over which his reign is irrelevant in contrast with the guerdon of her evocative evaluations. His majorly celebrious topographies attenuate reflexively in resonance with hers. All got that? <laughs> uh, as I said, these are deliberately opaque. Uh, but if you've been there, then you'll know it. So that's the uh, v uh, liberated vignette of the two earth elements, the male and female earth elements. This is what they do to each other in terms of realization. And this is the downside now. <laughs> <laughs>
Earth Man and Earth Woman, the vignette of dualistic derangement. She is flabbergasted in the midst of her furtively appropriated appraisals by the extent of his outwardly extending quantitative territory and counters his euphuistic grandiosity by devaluing his plans and developments through establishing camouflage boundaries which deny him admittance and which weaken the empire of overwhelmingly overt augmentation by which she feels undervalued and undermined. He feels reduced, abridged, condensed, and contracted in his proprietorial impulse by the mere perseity of her outwardly pertinacious emotional constituencies, which seem to exist for no other purpose than to shrink the compass of his being. He therefore feels impelled to act in ways which are overbearingly dismissive mm. of her surrogate approximations of his mechanically maintained modality and insistently persists in shoring up the collapsing structures of his raison d'etre with the flotsam and jetsam of his emaciated moribund monarchism. <laughs> in being repeatedly inconsiderately and tactlessly overruled, she becomes utterly antithetical to his preposterously preponderate pontification. In being domineeringly dispossessed and deprived of power with regard to his territories, she seeks to destabilize him on principle. She consequently shrivels her own tentatively sequestered topography into a locus of contracting bitterness and resentment. <laughs> they get worse. <laughs> in being devalued and diminished, he presses insupportable demands for emotionally impracticable propositions for the purposes of enslaving her to the cause of reestablishing his colossal, collapsing self-esteem. <laughs> In refusing to tolerate the fragmentation of his figmental structures, he is forced to fixate on her culpably crass cupidity with regard to his dolorously deficient self-deification. His destitute, depleted, dwindling domain of specious smugness is drawn out only insofar as it is able to affect diminution in respect of the unassailably puerile province of her insubstantial resistance. That's <laughs> <laughs> not a lot of fun, is it? <laughs> so that's the earth elements. <coughs> Do you want to go on here, the water elements? <laughs> yeah. Do we dare? Vignettes of liberation I really enjoyed writing, mm -hmm. but by the end of each vignette of dualistic derangement I felt really bad, <laughs> <laughs> because I actually had to do it to both of them, you know, just just get them to murder each other. <laughs> it was really quite upsetting having to do that, you know, because it was just stage by stage of it, and it was, oh, wearying in the extreme to write them. <laughs> it's like having to personally torture people. It's really quite horrible. So, 
female fire and male air, the vignette of liberation. She is rhapsodically transported by the elaborate harmonic lattices of his fluent capabilities and consequently empowered in her own sphere of superb consumption. She vividly venerates the varied vectors he stimulates in achieving victory in widely varying vicissitudes and through alignment with his virtuosity magnifies her own gifts in compassionately, cavort compassionately cavorting with each fabular tremor of phenomenal disportment. He is intricately intrigued by the animated abundance of her enraptured fascination. His diligence is quickened by her passionate enthrallment in respect of the phenomena of her sense fields. His virtuosity and expertise are stirred by the garrulous glamour of her compassion and he is moved to perform and interpolate more swiftly and with greater engrossment in the finest vacillations of transient detail. In being intricately and actively appreciated through his tirelessly conscientious commitment, she blazes with ardent humanitarian fervency in relation to the spectacular spectrum of phenomenal beauty. Through the Gordian sophistication of his exculpative exigencies in respect of her rutilant radiance, she becomes impulsively impassioned in desireless desire and her pure connectivity quickens with his. Being loved for his valiant verve and triumphant vigor hastens the proliferation of his diversified engagements with whatever requires his involvement. His attainments disperse into areas of heightening subtlety with respect to universal concerns whose parameters lie beyond pedestrian pragmatics. His creativity is self-created and can apply itself equally to the profound and insignificant. Female fire, male air, the vignette of dualistic derangement. She feels forlorn and isolated with regard to the unabating activity which seems to spring from his rapidly convolating approaches to their situation. <laughs> she seeks to seize whatever appears on the horizon and draw it within her private domain of prurience before he is able to categorize it according to his own schedule of preferable administration. <laughs> she consumes indiscriminate elements of his procedures in order to seduce him with the sense that she shares his nervous energy and his frenetic urge to relate apparently unrelated streams of reasoning before agreeing to accompany her in, his, in her wishes. According to his intricate reconnaissance, her desires are deemed desultory and deficient in research. He experiences her as imprudent and reckless in her lusts, and therefore cautions her ad nauseum with regard to the diverse and disparate dangers of launching full tilt toward the foci of her adoration. He grows ever more suspicious of her lack of caution with regard to her wants and infers from her foolhardy directness that she has complex intentions which are likely to endanger his schematically indexed strategies for avoiding calamity. <laughs> Subject to intricate questioning and inapprehensible suspicion with regard to the areas of experience which are fulfilling to her, 
She becomes searingly swift to grasp at anything he is not quick enough to subject to his inscrutable reasoning. In being atmospherically interrogated with regard to any desirable phenomenon she delineates, she ceases to delineate anything in advance of consummation and appears impulsive, impetuous, and capricious by compound factors. In relation to her apparent impetuosity, he grows quadratically apprehensive and distrustful. He becomes suspiciously perplexed as to why she acts without regard for their survival. He conspires through stealth and concealment to circumvent her impending forays into intensifyingly private acts of consummation. His self-defeating cycles of paranoia merely cause her to grasp more dangerously and deftly, and he becomes tortuously tormented by the need for control. <laughs> Everybody's like this. <laughs> Yes. Are you in the future going to do a codex translation? No. One of the things I was saying about it is that um, Kandrudech and I had considered not writing it at all. And we decided that we would write it, but we'd write it in such a way that you could only understand it if you'd been there because it would sort of come through the words at you and you'd say, oh God, I've been there, mm -hmm. or I've seen that was possible, but not through any intellectual understanding. It's, uh, it wouldn't help to have the definitions of all the words because you either pick something up from it or you don't. And if you don't, then you've just not been there. But we'd wanted to avoid uh, people appropriating it as some kind of way of you defining each other. And if you're bright enough to do it, good luck to you, but <laughs> <laughs> otherwise... Um, uh, so this is the only part of the book that's like this. These vignettes are entirely different from the rest of the book. But they provide a picture in words of those states and they're deliberately dense in order to provide a non-linear picture. Um, I, I think when, I think Ergin Doshi was the first person to read them and he commented that he could only get to the end of a sentence by just plunging into it regardless of understanding what he was reading. Uh, which I, which I was very happy to hear. <laughs> so that's that's given you something of a taste of what happens in human experience, both uh, in terms of liberation or potential liberation, and in terms of uh, potential misery. Um, I'm going to continue now with talking about Nyams and in particular the Nyam of Kandropalu Reflection. This uh, book, uh, Entering the Heart of the Sun and Moon, is a um, commentary on 
the Kandro Pawo Nida Melongu. I'll explain what that means now. Kandro means moving in space and is usually applied to uh, being female. It should actually be Kandro Ma because if you say Kandro it's actually not distinguished as either being male or female. Many people don't understand that because you can also get Kandro Pa. Uh, so Kandro Pawo. Pawo means warrior and is the male but you can also get Pamo. Now this is really important knowing that both can be both. There's Kandroma and Kandropa, there's Pawo and Pamo. So it's not really that uh, the male and female are being distinguished as being different here. This is important in terms of this whole approach to gender because uh, what you'll find is it's always saying this is how men and women are but then you can also reverse that. So you can't get hold of anything that actually says what it is to be male or female. There are simply refractions and reflections of those experiences. Um, in terms of gender, uh, this teaching provides uh, what's called a concave definition of gender rather than a, a convex definition. Uh, a convex definition says men and women are like this, with whatever that is. A concave definition, which we are offered here, comes from the, comes from the vows that one takes, the vows of view which is that men view phenomenal reality as female and women view phenomenal reality as male. This again is not a definition, this is a practice. So as a man I view everything I see as female. Phenomenal reality is female. Now if this is the definition of masculinity, then what does it define? I am male by virtue of the fact that I view phenomenal reality as female, and I'm female because I view phenomenal reality as male. This is a convex, de a, a concave definition, because nothing is defined apart from what I'm doing. One of the valuable things about this is that you can't fail to be male or female. With a convex definition you can say I'm failing of being female, I don't accord with the criteria, but here there are no criteria apart from your vision and there is no definition for what female is that I'm viewing in terms of phenomenal reality apart from its wisdom display and wisdom display is unbounded so there is no definition there either there is only an indication 
This is the aspect of the teaching that comes from menakde, mere indication. Mere indication is extremely important in terms of menakde. It's often called pointing out instructions. That's mainly in the tradition of the um, Longchenyinti. It's called pointing out instructions. Uh, it, it's called different things according to different uh, traditions. In the Arotea, it's called mere indication. In terms of menakde, um, one needs to understand the indication. If one doesn't understand it, it can't be explained. Because asking a question about it is proof that you won't understand the answer. I give a ludicrous explanation of this. It's ludicrous because it can't be anything else but ludicrous. Uh, if the instruction I give you is be in the room if you don't understand that instruction and you say how can I find myself in the room all I can say is well you're in the room if you then say but I don't feel as if I'm in the room all I can say is tough you're in the room just forget that you're not in the room if you then say, but I can't forget that I'm not in the room, uh, all I can say is, try harder. <laughs> <laughs> there is no answer, because how you're asking means that you can't understand. So with uh, viewing phenomenal reality as method display or wisdom display, there is no advice on how to do that because giving that suggestion, that mere indication, is all that's required. If you understand it, then you understand what that means. It really requires uh, having an idea uh, about form and emptiness, because wisdom display is emptiness, and method display is form. Method display is compassion, is uh, multifarious and particular. There are all kinds of things we could say. Contradiction, I used to give examples for a short period of time and then we realized it was really counterproductive to say, well, some would say, well, how do you see wisdom display then? And I'd say a few things. And then people would simply latch on to that and concretize it. <coughs> Uh, so, so we gave up doing that, and now we refuse to do it. Uh, seeing wisdom display, seeing method display, arises out of our experience of whoever the other gender happens to be. That experience of being, of recognizing someone as being other in some way. Uh, if you're a practitioner in this sense, it's really a wonderfully exciting opportunity because the, the man or woman you're relating to is an alien being. <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of the excitement about 
UFOs, you know, you know those things, <laughs> <laughs> and aliens, you know, they come out and the, you know, there's the music, the big organ plays, whatever. Um, but what we want to see is somebody really different, you know, someone who's got it worked out. We always assume those little green fellas, um, when, when they come out, are going to have all the answers. And that, that's mainly because we worship science. Uh, and we think if, you know, we just had enough science, we'd work it all out. Um, because somehow technology is it. But actually, you know, we're surrounded by aliens all the time. <laughs> and that degree of excitement really ought to be there. You know, wow, you're a woman. <laughs> I, I'm fascinated with women, you know. They're fascinating. I, I, I love them, all of them. You know, you just come up to one of them, you know, and they, uh, I think in an odd boy, it's, I, I say something about women be, being the the final Christmas tree at the end of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> Glittering and sparkling. It's a shame Contradiction's not here because she'd say something about men. I, I think men are a waste of time. <laughs> uh, I'm not interested in them. <laughs> mm -hmm. So if you have that apprehension, you know, that um, there are often these stories about yogis who um, who, who, who went off traveling and, um, uh, you know, uh, entered this particular land of the Dakinis. Or if it was a, a yogini, she'd enter this land of the Dakas. But, but that is actually where we are anyway. This is the land of the Dakas and Dakinis, and here we are. These are the people all around us. And they're utterly amazing, if we allow them to be. But it's very much a case of, of allowing men and women to be Dakas and Dakinis, Kandros and Pavos. Uh, there are some particular rules that go along with this. Um, the Kandro Pavo Nida Melongyud, and I'll get to the end of the explanation in a while of, of that uh, title, um, is... Uh, this teaching can actually be found in cryptic form in every tantra that men are externally compassion, internally wisdom, etc. You find that in every tantra. Within the 14 root vows of tantra, in every school, part of the vow is, uh, is never to uh, disparage the other gender. That is one of the root vows. And, uh, you know, quite apart from anything else, it actually has a profound effect on people if they really take that vow. We found that, uh, particularly in our Sangha, it's, it's, it's had a tremendous influence on people. You know, it's really an awful state of affairs where you have to, uh, you know, it's particularly awful to hear about partners disparaging each other. Um, and the strange thing about it is they don't know how ridiculous they sound. When you're saying, this is my wife, she's stupid. Yeah. <laughs> 
would you say, see this shirt, isn't this a ridiculous shirt? <laughs> no one would say that, would they? <laughs> but you can say, this is my husband, he's an idiot, you know? <laughs> well, you chose him, or you chose her, you bought the shirt, you bought the trousers, if it's a stupid pair of trousers, why did you buy them? <laughs> but it's as if, it's no reflection on me what I say about my partner. If I disparage my partner, I'm disparaging myself because I made the choice. No one made me marry this person or be with this person. Actually, the more you praise your partner, the more you praise yourself because I've got the best partner in the world. Ha-ha! <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? I mean, I think so. In I think of, of um, American sitcoms and how it's become almost common parlance to to do just that. Yes, you know, it, it's become uh, this sort of slapstick, knee-jerk reaction to hear that from someone else and laugh. Uh, it's entirely degraded. Uh, uh, you know, when you recognize how degraded it is and how it degrades your own condition and there are many aspects of comedy that that's the aspect of comedy that I really don't like one that degrades the human condition uh, one, what, I mean there's plenty of comedy around having children you know, and how that ruins your life and there's a lot of comedy around degrading the human condition and, uh, and it's all worth avoiding. That uh, I, I'm quite keen on comedy, as you may have guessed, but not in terms of degrading the human condition. We need to celebrate that. So the Kantra power, Nida Melongyut, is really an intensely celebratory teaching.